Jesus has already, already done. But I want to talk this morning about the, the heart of discipleship. We're in Luke 9. Uh, some of you know that a couple years ago, Betty and I were planning to take a group over to the Middle East uh, to do the tour that we did in 2008. We're going to go through Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. Didn't get enough people to do that. But when I was working um, with uh, uh, Pilgrim Tours on setting up our itinerary, I talked to Dan Berge one day, and I said, Dan, I said, there's, there's a special stop I want to make when we're in Cairo. I want to go and have, even if it's only 20 minutes, we get off the bus, I want to go to visit the American cemetery. And he said, well, why, why do you want to do that? And I told him the story. In the American cemetery in Cairo is, uh, is the very crude, humble resting place of an American missionary by the name of William Borden. Now, William Borden was, grew up in a very wealthy home. Um, his family had made a lot of money in the silver mining industry in Colorado. And then uh, they were also the, if you're old enough to remember, the Borden Dairy family, they were, that was their family. Um, very well off. Uh, Borden's mom came to faith in Christ under D.L. Moody's ministry uh, in Chicago um, back in the late 1800s in Borden. Um, made a profession of faith when he was seven. Went to a school here in Pennsylvania. Um, graduated when he was 16. And for graduation gift, his parents gave him a trip around the world. Just like you do. Now he's 16 years old, so you don't just put him on a plane, especially when you don't have any planes. Um, you're not going to send him off on a ship. He's going to ride mules and ox carts and so forth when he's in these other countries. So they, they sent a professor from Princeton, <coughs> excuse me, Princeton uh, Seminary. as a pastor, minister, teacher. And for the next almost year, they went all around the world. Uh, Walter Erdman was that professor's name, and he would introduce young Borden to missionaries and mission stations, and he got to see cultures and all different kinds of people. And by the time he got back to Rome, Rome and it was nearing the time to go home, he wrote his father and said, after all I've seen, I, I, cannot, I can't think but I should, um, anything but that I should prepare for foreign mission service. Now his father was not the same place spiritually that his mother was, and so he wrote back quickly a kind of a rebuking letter saying, you shouldn't make any major decisions before you're 21 years old. So William went back to the U.S. and entered Yale University. And this was a man that God had his hand on, a great power. In his freshman year, he invited other students at Yale to come uh, meet with him and to meet with others for morning Bible studies. And in short order, he had 150 students um, signed up for that and were meeting in different Bible study groups. By the time he was a senior at Yale, out of the 1,300 students at that university, 1,000 of them were in morning Bible studies each week. He also um, had, had a concern. This is, this is one of the things that we look for. If, um, somebody wants to go to the mission field here out of Keystone. We want to we hear what you're doing now, what, how you're serving the Lord now. And Borden already had uh, access to some of his family's fortune, and so he, he purchased a, a, a building there in New Haven, uh, Connecticut, and established a, what he called Yale Hope Mission 
And over the, just the years that he was there, thou, literally thousands of men. And this was a, a rough, rowdy seaport town at the time. There were brothels. There were lots of saloons. Um, thousands of men went through New Hope, uh, our Yale Hope mission. In fact, a visiting a Brit British theologian um, visiting the States was asked when he got back to England, what was the most impressive thing uh, about America for you? And this was his answer. He said, um, the sight of that young millionaire kneeling in prayer beside a bum at the Yale Hope Mission. Something pivotal happened in Borden's life when he was a freshman. He went to the student volunteer um, movement conference in Nashville, Tennessee. And speaking at that conference was Samuel Zwamer, uh, still considered the apostle to Islam. He had served in Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Really didn't win a lot of people to Christ, but his writings today are still being used by people who are uh, going to serve the Muslim people around the world. And Zwamer was talking at that conference about the 15 million Muslims in China. I bet you didn't know there were Muslims in China. And he was calling these young people out to, cons to consider going to some of them. And he said, of course, it will cost life. It is not an expedition of ease nor a picnic excursion. While he was at Yale, Borden applied for uh, mission status with China Inland Mission. Uh, they turned him down. They said, not yet. They said, we'd like to see you go to seminary. So when he graduated <coughs> from Yale, he did that, went to Princeton Seminary. And by the time he completed, he applied again with China in the mission, and they said uh, they would take him. <coughs> Excuse me. And in December of 1912, he sailed for Cairo. Now, this was a man whose family was so well-off and well-known that literally newspapers all over the world covered this story of this young millionaire giving up everything to become a missionary. One Chicago paper says, millionaire gives up all. He got to Cairo. That was, his, uh, that was his first stop in preparing to go to the three million Muslim people in the Jansu, Gansu province of north central China. While he's at Cairo, he's studying Arabic. Uh, he met, he actually met a a Muslim uh, studying in a mosque in Cairo from Gansu. Uh, he lived with a Syrian family, Muslim family, uh, to learn ab about their ways and how, how they believed and lived and so forth. And while he's doing all this, he's, he's, he was not one to stand still. There's about 800,000 people in Cairo at that time. And he's working with other missionaries to make sure that a scripture, copy of the scriptures get, gets into every home in Cairo. He had only been there about three months, and he contacted uh, spinal meningitis, and inside of three weeks, he was dead. And they buried him, this crude cemetery, concrete slab in the American cemetery. And at the bottom of the slab is, are engraved these words by his mentor, William or Walter Erdman, who had taken him around the world. He said, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Up until just a couple of years ago, that uh, marker, that tombstone, was all but uh, impossible to get to. They built a wall around the cemetery that was uh, higher than the slab, 
And, and so it was literally, the, the slab faced the wall, so the only way you could have read it was to go, go like this and get in between this wall and look at the slab. Uh, thankfully, there's some Christians now that uh, have uh, done some work on it and are maintaining it. Now, you would think, and, and people did think this, as they, again, the news went around the world that this young millionaire gave up everything for the cause of Christ in his will. Um, all the money that he had was distributed to organizations like China Inland Mission and, and to Yale Hope Mission and, and other works of both of charity and evangelism. Nothing kept for himself. 25 years old, never even made it, never made it to the mission field. And yet, if you know anything about the legacy of missions, you know the impact that William Borden's life and death had on the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation of missionaries. And the thing is, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for a life like that. You see, when Jesus came into the world, he came, we've talked about this weeks, uh, weeks over and over, that Jesus' mission was to come and die, be raised to life, so that we can have eternal life. However, Jesus came not just to die just so we could have eternal life but so that we could live for him. And that's really what he's calling us to in this text today, beginning at verse 57. Now, I want <clears throat> to make sure we understand. This morning, we're going to talk about sacrifice. Sacrifice, because that is really the life of the believer. When Jesus calls, himself, calls us to himself, he calls us to come and die to ourselves. We talked about this a couple weeks ago deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And so when we talk about sacrifice, I don't care whether you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, I don't care if you're a student in school, um, I don't care if you're a homemaker, I don't care whether you have a lot of money or no money. Jesus, when he calls us to himself, he calls us to lay it all down for him. Beginning of verse 57, Jesus and his disciples as they were walking along Someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. He said to another person, come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and to preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but, but first let me go get, say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Father, I pray for the word the holy word this morning to be mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. I, I know just based on my own heart that we come to passages like this with obstacles and hurdles erected to make sure you don't get too close, that your demands are not too high that your callings 
not too stretching. And so would you start with my obstacles and dismantle them? And that for all of us, we can hear the Savior as if he's in the room today saying, lay down all for me, whatever that means. And no doubt it's going to mean something radically different from one to the other this morning. But that we would have the wherewithal by the Spirit as we look at our own lives to know maybe one or two things that Jesus is addressing in our lives today. Pray that you would bind and muzzle the enemy. He hates you. He hates us. He hates obedience. And that um, he would have no room to operate this morning. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. We want to say as believers, and we probably don't do this well enough to unbelievers, that Christianity is a high-demand faith. Christianity is a high-demand faith. So here comes this man, goes up to Jesus, and he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, for us, when an, if somebody would come to us and say, I, I want to follow Jesus, I mean, doesn't it just make you salivate? You get all excited. Somebody wants to follow Jesus. I, I'm here on the front lines. I get to lead them to faith in Christ. This is so exciting. And maybe don't scrutinize their interest, their desire. Maybe don't ask questions. And, and yet that was not the way Jesus did it. I mean, you would think he would receive somebody says, I want, to follow, I, I want to follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. That's awesome. Sign your name right here and we'll, we'll be on our way. You'll be the, my 13th disciple. And Jesus says, well, just so you know, I don't have a lot going for me. I, <laughs> come nightfall, I really don't know where I'm going to sleep. Sometimes we're in Bethany and Bethphage area and we can crash at uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus' homes sometimes. We have some other friends here and there up in Galilee. We can stay with my parents. But really, to a large degree, we sleep outside a lot. We don't have any home. I don't have a condo, no townhouse. I don't even have an apartment. Foxes have it better than I do. Now, I, when I read this, I'm like, there goes the prosperity gospel right out the window. Right? Jesus didn't even have the, a basic domicile in which to stay, a place to call home, an address to have his mail sent to. If we, if we get out of this book that Jesus planned for promises that everybody that follows him will be rich and have all their stuff they want you've got to do do like thomas jefferson and cut out portions like this because it doesn't square with the prosperity gospel another man comes along assume it's a man and jesus now Jesus takes the initiative himself. 
invites him to come follow me. And this man says, yeah, he, he will. I, I have something to do first. I have to go home and bury dad. Now, this is really interesting. And scholars can't get on the same page with this. There's two possibilities. One, that there's a corpse at home rotting, and they need to get him in the ground quick. If that's the case, he'll be back with Jesus inside of a day, something like that. Now, there are scholars who, who think it's unreasonable of Jesus to demand that he come now if he's got a corpse to bury. And the assumption is he's the oldest brother, and that would be the duty of the, or the oldest son. That would be the duty of the oldest son. And so they think it's unreasonable of Jesus to expect that he has to follow today when he's got this important family responsibility. And so why couldn't he follow tomorrow? Because Jews would bury their dead within 24 hours. It was very quick. The, the problem is, and, and, oh, let me finish. The, uh, so the belief is, well, what he was saying is his dad's not dead yet, but as the oldest son, he has to stay back home until dad does die and then he'll come follow you, which might be 10 years or 8 years, or if he's in poor health, might be 6 weeks. The problem with that is the next little incident that happens, <laughs> it's a matter of probably hours at best that it would be required to say goodbye to the family. So it might well be that Jesus was saying to the guy, um, I, I, I need you to come follow me now. And, and doesn't it feel wrong that Jesus would say, you can't even bury your father? I mean, who among us would refuse to go home and bury father? Now, Jesus, I, I, I the NLT here, I think, is rendering, um, rendering the meaning that Jesus had when he said, uh, let the dead bury the dead. If you have a more literal translation, that's all it says. In the NLT, it says, let this, those who are spiritually dead bury their own dead. And that, we think, is what Jesus was getting at. In other words, you, you have, you're called to preach the kingdom of God. You're, you're called to bring, bring and preach life to people. You don't have time for these things. Let other members of your family take care of that. You come follow me and preach the kingdom of God. Again, when I read this, I think, Jesus, you're so unreasonable. It's so inconsiderate of you to ask this man to abandon his family under time of need. And yet you get to the next incident, and it's just as bad. Come follow me, Jesus says. Um, I, okay, I will, but first let me run home and say goodbye to my family. Yeah, go do that. Uh, Mom, Dad, I'm not going to see you for a couple months. I'm going to follow this new rabbi around Palestine and preach with him. Oh, son. Well, we're going to really miss you. You know, tears streaming down and so forth. He says goodbye to his brothers and sisters. and That's just normal. Who wouldn't do that? I mean, even missionaries today get to say goodbye to their families. And instead, Jesus comes back with this. You know, if you put your hand to the plow and then you turn around, by the way, turn around, look back, the rows get crooked, right? Put your hand to the plow, you turn around, look back, you are not fit for the kingdom of God. Do you, do you, does that sound harsh to you? 
unreasonable, ridiculous, demanding, demanding. You see, as American Christians, let's be honest, we have tamed our faith. We have tamed our faith to the extent that, that when we hear things like this, we, just, we have to keep reading past that because that's just too troublesome. Think about Jesus is saying, I want you to follow me. I want you to bring, preach the kingdom of Christ and so forth. Think about all the people that are desperately needing to hear about the kingdom of God. For Jesus, it's urgent. It's high-demand faith. And I, to be honest, I don't, I don't know how to reconcile these kinds of harsh statements with how I tend to think about my Christianity. But we've talked before that Jesus understands that, uh, or believes that a faith family matters more than a bio, biological family. Remember when Jesus siblings and mom showed up they wanted to see jesus and so somebody whispers in his ear your family's here they want to see you and jesus goes with what i think would seem like callousness to us he says well who is my family all these people around here who are who are serving the kingdom of god this is these are my brothers and sisters this is my real family right here in fact he goes on to say we're going to get to this in luke chapter 2 uh, 12 I did not come, remember this? I did not come to bring, what? Peace. But I came to bring a sword. And verses 52 and 53 go so far as to say, because of the gospel, parents and children are going to be at each other's throats. Brothers and sisters are going to be at each other's throats because of the gospel. Make no mistake about it. The gospel doesn't make friends necessarily. The gospel tends to divide people. We see the extreme examples of this in the Muslim culture where parents find out that a, a, a child or a sibling has become a Christian, and what do they do? In some cases, they murder them. Family ties out the window. You're dead to me. But even in less radical, graphic ways, the gospel divides. You, some of you know what it's like in your families, in your extended families. You cannot talk about spiritual matters. It creates tensions. It creates conflicts. It creates arguments. You just, you just can't go there. You've tried, and it goes badly. And Jesus wanted... Potential disciples to understand that if, if your bio family matters more to you than anything else, the gospel is not going to be for you. It's interesting, this last, let's go back to this last um, individual that Jesus said, follow me to. And he wants to go home to his family, say goodbye. Seems so reasonable. But what if Jesus the Bible tells us he knows all things, right? He is, after all, the Son of God come in the flesh, but he is God incarnate. What if Jesus knew that returning home 
And saying goodbye would mean this. Oh, sweetheart, you can't go and leave us. We need you here. What are the prospects that that man still turns around and follows Jesus with a mother or a father or siblings that are pleading, don't go, don't go, don't, don't go. And Jesus was saying, I'm trying to help you keep your first commitment. At the first year anniversary of this church, our theme was keeping our first love first. Keeping our first love first. Let me ask you, if you had to sign a confessional, who would you say you love most? than anybody else and the answer that you come up with will tell you something about yourself as a disciple J.C. Ryle the first Anglican bishop in Liverpool England said those who look back actually want to go back you remember the story in Genesis chapter 19? Lot living in Sodom, bad place. And God wants to get Lot, who follows the Lord, wants to get Lot and his family out of there, and then he's going to destroy the city, rain down fire from heaven. And when the angels came to tell Lot and his family, need to get out, need to get out now so the Lord can destroy this place, they were like, this is our home. I'm not sure we want to leave it. The angel finally grabs a hold of them and starts dragging them out of Sodom. And he tells them, just make sure you don't look back at Sodom. And you get down to verse 26 in that chapter, and it says that Lot's wife turned around her home's back there. People she knows and people she loves and cares, they're back there. She turned around and looked. One last look. And she turned into a pillar of salt. Those who look back want to go back. Listen, to become a Christian, and this is important if you're not a believer here this morning, Please, we, we want to make sure you understand the cost. When you come to Jesus Christ, you don't just, we often think about this, that we get a ticket out of hell. You know, we get the promise we'll never be alone, alone again. Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Some other things like that that are highly beneficial to us. And yet when we come to Christ, what we have effectively done is enlisted in God's army. Now we have a bunch of people in here who served in the military, and, and you know that when you enlist, you're not in charge anymore. <laughs> you go in, and uh, they're going to give you a haircut. And you tell them, I, you know, I want to look like, I don't know, Brandon Fisher, I don't know. You know, this chic, sharp haircut. And they say, no, no, you're going to get one like Keith Rohr. You're going to get a haircut like that. 
you go into the mess hall and you, you try to order uh, biscuits and gravy. I'm like, no, you're going to get this. So you try to order a steak. No, you're going to get this. You don't have a choice of your hairstyle. You don't have a choice of the clothes you wear. You don't have a choice of the meal you eat. You don't have a choice of what you spend your time doing or what time in the morning you get up to do it. And, and you're screamed at all day by people that probably should be in prison. And they make you do things like running 20 miles with a rucksack on your back full of rocks. And they tell you when to go to bed at night. And they tell you where to go and where you can't go. And if you've been in the military, you've been glad to get out of the military. But when we come to Jesus, we have enlisted in God's army for the rest of our lives. And we now have a new commanding officer. Let me take you to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Endure suffering along with me, Paul says, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And Maybe we can substitute the word we're using this morning, sacrifice. Endure sacrifice along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. Now that establishes priorities Priorities that are all about doing what God wants us to do rather than doing what I want to do. Spending my money the way God wants me to spend the money instead of the way I want to spend my money. Spending my time the way God has uh, plans for me to spend some of my time instead of me spending it all on, on me. And the question that we, I, I think, probably all through our lives as a disciple need to have at the forefront of our minds, re, uh, reprioritizing my life. As I said, I was really wrestling through this this week and thinking about what are some, what are some things that Jesus might be asking of me that I'm kind of blowing off because it seems so unreasonable. And so wrestling with this question, am I fit to follow Jesus? Because did you hear what he asked this man or said to this man at the very end? If you put your hand to the plow and then turn around and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Following Jesus means voluntarily abandoning whatever rights I think I have. Following Jesus means abandoning voluntarily that's different than military voluntarily abandoning whatever rights I think I have uh, a number of years ago a Cubs rookie baseball uh, team quit Adrian Cardenas had only been with the organization six years he had played in the minors for a number of years eventually got called up and he quit and there were a variety of reasons why he quit, but the main one he talked about in an article he wrote um, not too long ago. He said, um, 
ball players, and this would apply to probably every professional um, ball player, not just baseball. But but relationships take a huge toll. Relationships get a huge toll taken on them if you are a major um, league ball player. He said, when you lose yourself in the game, as you must, it's all too easy to lose your sense of home. He said, it did take long for me to see how it happens as I became friends with players and heard about the relationships and marriages that broke up, the relatives and close friends who faded from view, the parents or grandparents whose funerals were missed because of an expected call up to the majors. He writes, sometimes I'd stay awake through the night almost laughing to myself, mentally weighing the small fraction of success against the overshadowing personal and professional failure that comes with being a ball player. Now, here's the point of that. Every aspiration that you have in life, everything you want to do, the person you want to become is going to require sacrifice. If you want to become a professional ball player, you have to practice, 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 and you have to play, 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 play. You have to watch your diet. You have to train. You get coaches. Your aspiration means that you have to sacrifice some things. If, if you want to go to a prestigious college and um, you're going to have to work hard, it's going to cost you a lot of money, you're going to have to really work hard, compete with the other people that are there. If you want to become wealthy, you want to become a millionaire by the time you're 30, you might have to work 75-hour weeks in the business, struggling business that you've started. And you're going to sacrifice rest. You're going to probably sacrifice relationships. You're going to probably sacrifice health, maybe even meals. It doesn't matter what aspiration you have, whether it's a good aspiration or a bad aspiration, there's going to be sacrifice involved. And it does seem sometimes that as Christians that we are better at weighing those kinds of sacrifices than we are the ones that come out of the response to Jesus' words, come follow me. Jesus might just ask you to sacrifice something of your family. Now, as we talked last month, we have to be careful about this because the cults don't take the entire scripture into account. And they end up stealing people away from their immediate families. Jesus doesn't do that. I mean, Peter, who is married. Uh, We don't see a lot of Peter's wife in nothing of her in the gospel accounts, but we see later, Paul talks about um, Peter taking his wife along on ministry trips. He doesn't call us to abandon family that we have responsibility for, spouses, our children. But he does call us sometimes to make, um, to ask them to make sacrifices for the kingdom. Betty and I wrestled with this back in 1986, whether or not God was calling us to the foreign mission field. Wrestled with this for three months. And the number one challenge that we, well, at least my wife was wrestling with, with the impact on the children. I was more worried about the food I was going to have to eat. 
But what will it be like for our children to grow up in, in a different culture and not really be American? What will it be like for them in the, the place that God sends us to? And, you know, will they get a sour taste of the faith because of what he's asked us to do and so forth and so on? God might ask you to sacrifice your job and your lucrative salary, might ask you to sacrifice some of your toys or to give up your aspirations for your future and take up his for you. You know, this can be big things like we've talked about William Borden, mission life, but it can be smaller things that impact an hour of your life or impact a week of your life. We put out on Friday the um, about the impending weather event in Texas and saying, you know, Kevin's t- Kevin was texting me that day say, hey, can you have people on standby? We're going to probably be ready for teams this week already as well as next week. You know, some of us couldn't possibly do that with our jobs and our boss, but some of us could. Are you, op- are you open to that? Jesus says, this is what I want you to do for a week of your life. Or maybe get involved in a refugee ministry here. We have a meeting coming up next month, September 26th, to talk about our next refugee family. And those that are on the current team that work with the Bunchettis know that, especially in the early months, it can be very demanding. A lot of needs that people have who drop into this culture and into this world they don't know anything about it. And they depend on us to help them learn English, help them learn bus routes and things about what's going on in the house. Maybe God wants, I I, I do wonder if sometimes the the greatest challenge for us as American Christians is, is being willing to relinquish our time to Jesus. It's easier for me to write a check than to write off a week of my time or a a couple hours every week. Maybe Jesus wants you to teach youth here at Keystone. To maybe disciple some young moms. um, Get them together and help them grow in Christ. Maybe to volunteer at the factory or the point, Water Street. I don't know what God's saying to you this morning. I know some things he's saying to me this week. I think these lines here really flesh out, verse 23, Luke 9, where Jesus says, you want to follow me? Deny your own way, give up your own way, shoulder your cross, which is an instrument of suffering, sacrifice, and follow me. And and when you think about just think about this for a minute you think about the one who strung together all of your veins and arteries who assembled your skeleton which the older I get the more um, stunned I am how this all works I'm just stunned by how this works I mean, the, the fluidity of the movement, they're still trying to get all this figured out with robotics. Um, how God put this together 
And then he chiseled your feet and your hands and your tongue. And, and, then, and then how he made this same thing for himself. And he left, he left the place where he was worshipped in glory. And he, he descended to this place where he was wronged over and over again. And then murdered and executed for, for us, for you and me. How could we possibly deny him anything when he says, follow me? The year that Betty and I really wrestled with whether or not God was calling us to the mission field, uh, Dr. George Murray was speaking at Lancaster Bible College. I was a sophomore there. It was missions week in January. And uh, Dr. Murray is... He was head of team missions at the time. He's, today he's a chancellor at Columbia International University and uh, such a man who loves God. And I remember as he was wrapping up the conference, he said, uh, I want you to take out a blank piece of paper. And of course, we're all students, so we all had papers back before days of laptops. To take out a blank piece of paper, and he said, I want you to look at that he said you know we we have um, all kinds of documents that we have to sign off on so last month when I had a little bit of surgery I had all these forms I had to fill out you know they're basically saying you know you won't sue us if you die and instructions to the widow and all that kind of stuff on there you have to sign your name off that way if you die they show Betty see he said we could do this we have contracts we sign our name to, and we agree all of this stuff up here we'll do, at, you know, and, and we'll, we'll abide by. And he said, I want you to take that piece of paper, and on the bottom right-hand corner, I want you to sign your name. And then I want you to give that paper to God and tell him he can fill in anything above that that he wants. Inside the bulletin you got this morning, this blank piece of paper. And maybe you want to sign your name at the bottom right-hand corner. And then in, maybe this afternoon, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow morning, you go to God and say, this is for you. Whatever you put up there, I'll abide by the contract. Time is short. And so many of the things that we spend our time doing and spend our money on are going to be meaningless. But what we do for Christ lasts on to eternity. And when they close the lid of your casket, what do you want to have people remember you for? A life lived for self, indulged, or a life lived for the eternal glory of the one who made you and bought you. Father, I, I know what I want, but I also look at my life and at my schedule and my purchases and my investments and say, doesn't always reflect 
what I say I want. And so as Jesus says to me, to my brothers and sisters, as well as to those who might be listening to this, who are not yet in the kingdom of God, we want to be clear about the enormity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And would you give all of us the boldness to sign that blank piece of paper and not just in the moment say, this is a really cool thing, yeah, I'll do this. But to say, Jesus, for the rest of my life, with the help of the Spirit, I know I'm going to go back and forth, I'm going to fail, but my desire is to say yes every time you call to whatever it is you call me to do. Whatever sacrifice you ask me to make, my desire is to say yes. Make me willing and make me able. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand.